Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. This episode of Shameless is brought to you by Preen Bags, lightweight, machine washable bags that will take you from work to the gym to the beach. Hello and welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. You're joined, as always, by Melbourne journalists Zara McDonald. This is the wrong way round. And Michelle Andrews. See, are you still on that thing where you don't want to say your name first? It's not that I don't want to say my name first. You're not arrogant for saying your name first. I know. It started like that and now I'm not used to saying my name first, so I just stumbled <laughs> over my own name. Coming up on today's show, the long history of the Hottest 100 and the inability for female artists to crack in, plus the reunion of Brad and Jen, of course, and then the Alec Baldwin interview that was one of the most bizarre podcasts we've listened to in a very long time. But first, Michelle, how was your week? I have a story from my week that I have withheld from telling you since it happened, and I've been itching to tell you, but as soon as it did unfold the way it happened, I was like, no, I need to hold on to this because it's great content and I need Zara's genuine reaction on the podcast. And you were so annoying about it too. Like you texted me after it happened being like, something really funny happened, but I can't tell you. Not and I was funny, like, embarrassing. Don't don't tell me that something funny happened if you're going to withhold it for four days. Okay. I'm going to try and tell this in a succinct way that all the listeners are on board and understand the context of the situation. For those who are unaware, which is all of you except for maybe Zara and a handful of our friends, Zara's school is very into her and loves bringing her in as an alumni or is it an alumnus? I love how you said school is into me. As well, they just love you. Like they are really proud of you and what you do in the media and they often kind of wheel you out at events and in interviews and whatever, magazines, as like a star of your school. Okay, exaggeration here is a little on fire, but I don't mind it. Michelle has always complained that 
her school has never called her up as much as my school has called me. Exactly. So it's been a long running thing for you and I, probably about 12 months. I it's, don't think that's an exaggeration. No, no, no. That's fair. Where my school clearly had no idea that I existed or that I ever went there. And your school was calling you every couple of months to try and get you involved in things, which is lovely and beautiful. Now, what happened a couple of weeks ago, Zara? We finally got an email in our inbox and I saw it and I, I gave a little squeal, I think, in the office. You were so excited because not only just us, but between our friends, I have told everyone, be like, why doesn't my school care about me. My school never reaches out. And it was simply the comparison between you and me that you were being called on so regularly. And you were asked to do an interview for the magazine. Yes. What I didn't realise is that about one or two months ago when you, your mum and my mum and I got dinner together and I vented about the sad reality at play is that my mum took that little pearl of knowledge that I was upset that my school never <laughs> reached out to me. Her. She messaged them online <laughs> To tell them to interview me, like being like, do you guys know that Michelle Andrews went to Avila? And she swore, she made my sisters swear not to tell me. This is the funniest thing ever. This is like the equivalent of a kid that doesn't get any airtime on the netball court so the mum calls the coach. Yes. <laughs> I am like so humiliated. I rocked up to my house and my mum was like, did you see Avila magazine? And I was like... Yes, I'm in it. She's like, I know. I, I messaged them about you and I told them had they been across what you were doing and it was so great that they reached out. I told Evelyn and Claire not to tell you anything about it. I didn't want you to be embarrassed. <laughs> what did you say to her? I said to her, I'm like, mum, that is so like nepotistic, number one, how humiliating. But also they would know you're my mum. She goes, no, 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 they wouldn't. They wouldn't know that. I'm like, your last name is literally Andrews. Did she message them on Facebook? She messaged them through Vicky Andrews. Oh my God. I am like... I'm st- I feel so humiliated because I've had friends and school colleagues and like peers reach out to me and be like, oh my God, you're in the magazine. I'm in the magazine because my mum, bless her soul, is very proud and excited about I Shameless. I was going to say, we all need a Vicky Andrews in our corner. She's my cheerleader. But how, like, I am so humiliated. That is amazing. I didn't think that this shit happened past the age of like 17. Well, my school clearly still doesn't give a fuck about me. Like, they don't at all. <laughs> Not many people do that, Michelle. That's a joke for the record. It's so embarrassing. Anyway, I do have a recommendation this week. I want everyone to go watch Sex Education Season 2 on Netflix. And if you haven't watched Season 1, you better go and watch that as well. Sex Education is brilliant and so cleverly done and well acted and well executed. And the fact that Zara McDonald has not watched a single episode in full tears my heart to shreds. It's not that I don't want to watch it. Like I have an interest in watching it. So what is it then? Because you haven't watched it. I know. It's kind of like when you kept recommending Love Island UK and you thought that I wasn't watching it because it was some personal vendetta. Like I don't don't know how to watch things very well. (laughs) Like I'm so bad at watching things. You really need to watch this because I actually think you'll walk away from it and love every single And I believe you. Like I Mm. believe you that watching this will make my life better and yet I bet you in the next two weeks I just won't prioritise time to do it. That said, I will do my absolute best. I'll report back next week. Great. How was your week? Did your mum try and champion (laughs) you to your school? Not necessary because they already know who you are and they already love you. No, but I have to say, I keep, my mum always gives Michelle presents. Like, remember when she bought you falafels and they never made their way to you? Yes. Because mum knows that Michelle loves falafels. So she bought Michelle falafels and they've been, I think they're still sitting in my freezer at home. To their credit, Trish McDonald and Vicky Andrews are great mums. Oh, they're wonderful. She also gave me a packet of lollies to give you for Christmas (laughs) that are still sitting in my bedroom. So, what lollies? 
I don't know. It's like we're you, talking like Alan's lollies. You know, when middle-aged people don't actually get a packet of lollies, they kind of like make their own lolly bag. I love lolly bag. I know it's still sitting at home. So hopefully, by the time we record next week, you'll have got that. Otherwise, a pretty uneventful week. I am about to jump on a plane to go to Tasmania for the weekend. Yes, which I'm super excited about. As for recommendations, though, because my week was a little more uneventful than yours, I have a couple. Would you hear them out? I mean, I gave you a couple last week, so I think it is only fair. Please level the playing field. I saw Little Women at the cinema. Mm-hmm. So good. I loved it. I, I feel so bad to say this. I am not across Little Women at all. You guys will hear about it in this week's In Conversation episode. I'm not across the storyline, really, the characters, the movie. Like, it's just flown past my radar. It's really interesting because you and I love to read. We love stories about women, and I've read quite a few kind of like Jane Austen or the Bronte sisters book, but Little Women I had never read. Mm. And I kind of wish I'd read it before I went to see the movie, but the movie was so, so good. I'm obsessed like everybody else with Florence Pugh. I think it's like the Adam Driver conversation of this week, which is the basic bitch (laughs) thing to say in January 2020 that you're obsessed with Florence Pugh. And then my second recommendation is to listen to an episode of The Daily about Meghan and Harry. You love The Daily and you also love Meghan and Harry right now. I can't get enough Meghan and Harry content. I said to you on the way here, I would listen to an episode a day, even uh, like just raps, explanations, whatever it is on Meghan and Harry, even if that episode only gave me 30 seconds of new information. Was there any new material or like a morsel of information yes. that you got from the daily that you hadn't gotten anywhere else? And if so, please tell me. Yes, it was really interesting the way that they explained why this story matters so much beyond it existing as a gossip story. Yeah. They had this really interesting line of thought that there was similar characteristics of a person that voted to leave the EU and a person that was really annoyed about Meghan and Harry leaving the monarchy. Ah. And the idea was that Britain are in this incredible phase of instability and a lot of people are looking for just little morsels of stability and the monarchy often represent that. It's like this old British institution. It represents everything that Britain has always been and they kind of want to hop back to that. And that the people that are giving Meghan and Harry the most grief, I guess, over this are very likely the people that wanted to leave the EU. So that was like probably a terrible summation of a very smart no, conversation. Interesting. Well, if you look at the men who are very angry on Twitter with Meghan Markle, a lot of the people Piers who Morgan. hate Meghan Markle are like Piers Morgan personified. It's exactly. just him, like clones of Piers Morgan. I would very much recommend listening to that for a much smarter sort of articulation <laughs> of that point. But it's a really, really good episode. So go and listen to it. I'll put it in our show notes. Wonderful. Thank you very much for both of your recommendations. On to the first segment today, Zara McDonald. Now, we do need to give you guys a little bit of a disclaimer. As Zara said, she is going to Tasmania for the weekend and we wanted to have a bit of a long weekend. We didn't want to work the whole way through. So this episode is recorded one day earlier than what we typically record, Shameless, which means we are recording this just before the Hottest 100 live count is announced. Yeah, and we wanted to have this conversation because I think regardless of what the outcome of the Hottest 100 is, there is such merit to talking about the history of the Hottest 100, why women have struggled to crack through so much. And even if someone like Tones and I does take out the top spot, that this history still exists and the precedent still exists too. Well, the beauty of audio and podcasting is that we can go into the future and find out who won. So guys, here is me, Michelle of the future, who will be editing this podcast and able to give some answers as to who won the Hottest 100 count over the weekend. 
Hello, friends. Happy Monday. I am very, very stoked to report that the winner of the Triple J Hottest 100 count was Billie Eilish with her song Bad Guy. Eilish has become the first ever woman to take the top spot and was trailed by Flume's Rushing Back at number two, Mallrats Charlie at number three, Tones and I's Dance Monkey at number four, and Denzel Curry's Bulls on Parade at number five. It has been a fucking awesome year for women in music and we are so over the moon to see that the hottest 100 has finally been cracked by some really incredible female talent but that all said I still think this segment is really important I mean it still took years for us to get to this point so in this segment Zara and I want to explore how that has been the case All right, Zara, before we do anything else, for our international listeners or people who just aren't into radio whatsoever, let's give some background as to what Triple J is and then what the Triple J Hottest 100 countdown is too. Triple J is a national radio station for listeners of alternative music. So this is where a bit of friction comes in. That The Hottest 100 countdown for Triple J does not illuminate the most popular song it illuminates the coolest song and I'm going to put inverted commas around that triple j's vibe is all about being on trend being <laughs> I'm Sorry. trying to be cool <laughs> so triple j's vibe is all about being on trend and and being very cool do you think I could say the word gnarly without anyone like <laughs> shuddering on the tram right now Triple J is gnarly. That's the vibe. It's all about going for something that's alternative, that's against the grain, but also popular at the same time, which sounds like an oxymoron, but somehow isn't. Yeah, there are a certain group of songs that kind of fit that bill, right? Popular, but still cool. Absolutely. So this has been going for 45 years and a solo female musician has never won. There have been plenty of solo male musicians. There have been a handful or a smattering of groups that might have one woman in it, but a woman has never won on her own. And that's what we want to cover quickly today, Zara, because 45 years is a pretty long time. Yeah, totally. And I remember a couple of years ago, the journalist Erin Riley tweeted that more people from St. Kevin's Turak had won the Hottest 100 than women. That's a private boys school for those wondering in, in Melbourne. Melbourne yeah which I thought was a very interesting thing to note what I did find also very curious this week when I was digging into the people that had voted this year for the 2020 countdown was that more than 3 million votes had been collected and 55.5 percent of voters were female mm-hmm. so this is a really interesting idea I think when we're talking about sexism in the hottest 100 there is this idea that well I'm not not voting for them because they're a woman I just don't like their music mm-hmm. but I think what we want to have a conversation about is what is it consistently that means that female musicians are not getting to this point and what is it consistently that means it's not just male voters it's female voters too aren't voting for these people absolutely well first of all if you don't like the song dance monkey that is totally fine we are not calling you sexist if you don't like that song we can't take one example and extrapolate it to explain 45 years of a woman never winning. However, there is a pattern here and we can use this example to explore that pattern and wonder why it's the case. There is definitely something in my opinion with us taking male artists and I'm not just talking about musicians but writers, actors, singers, everything under the sun, painters more seriously than we do their female counterparts. And I think centuries of history have contributed to that. I mean, just think about the example of J.K. Rowling, who was not that long ago told by her publisher, allegedly, to go under the acronym of J.K. Rowling instead of her name Joanne, because she was told that men and boys would not want to buy books written by a female author. This is not something that's just been plucked out of thin air. And I definitely don't think that 40 five year 
tally of women not getting the top spot again and again and again is coincidence. That all said, I am hopeful. I do think the tides are turning and I would hope that in 2020, someone like JK Rowling could come out under Joanne and it would be recognised and heralded as just as great art, regardless of whether it's from a man or a woman. There is that sense of coolness. And I know that sounds like a very simplistic way to look at it, but I do think the commercialisation of female music is treated with far more disdain than the commercialisation of someone like Dean Lewis and his music. And I know that there was an interesting conversation in our Facebook group comparing maybe like an Amy Shark to a Dean Lewis or a Tones and I to a Dean Lewis. And people were saying, hey, look, there's still criticism for Dean Lewis and how commercial his music is too. Mm. And I think that's not the point. It's not that criticism doesn't exist. It's the volume of criticism that exists. And when it comes to Tones and I and her winning this top spot, it's not the idea that people don't want her to win. It's the active campaign for people to stop her winning. There is this vitriol towards Tones and I that I really, really don't understand. And there was a lot of commentary in our Facebook group saying, I'm not a bandwagoner because I don't like Tones and I. I just genuinely don't like her music. Mm. And I think it's important to examine why there's such a group of people that don't like her music or don't like her, given she hardly does any media. She doesn't really have a public personality. There's not that much to be annoyed by. Like, why is there this movement of people who really are annoyed by her. I, I don't really understand it. And I think it comes back to almost that same idea that we talk about almost every week on this podcast where it's time to examine why this annoyance exists. Absolutely. I think how it has transcended meme culture is fascinating that so many people actively want her to not win. And as you said, it's that intensity that we, I've never experienced that with a male musician in the hottest 100. I've never seen so many people rail against one person winning apart from Amy Shark and Tones and I, I feel really quite sorry for her. There was a great Triple J hack episode at the end of 2019 that examined the trolling that Tones and I gets. And I just, I really struggle to understand the level of vitriol and the intensity of this hatred that people direct her way because yeah her music's popular but doesn't that say if something's really popular and loved by groups of people that it's a great song like I find this rise of counterculture when it comes to Triple J so interesting because Triple J created Tones and I she was first found on that streaming platform on that radio station and Triple J listeners made her what she is now effectively of course she is to be credited with all the incredible artistry that she's put out into the world but Triple J was her first home it's where she was first recognized as a great talent and this pushback on her now being popular beyond Triple J audiences and among the general public is just fascinating. Counterculture is so interesting to me, particularly when it comes to Triple J listeners turning on the very people that they first held up as being incredible. It kind of speaks to the snobbery that can exist in all art across the table. I'm not just talking about music here, but I'm talking about writing or whatever it is that we want to talk about, film too. Mm. But I think there is this sense that the minute something does get popular, it suddenly becomes incredibly uncool. Mm. And that's a really hard pill to swallow when you love commercial radio like me, because the only music I love to death is like your Shawn Mendes and your Dua Lipa. Like by that measure, I have the world's most uncool music taste. And I wonder at times like this in the year when the Hottest 100 and everyone's uploading their like votes to Instagram and their 
there sitting around barbecues listening to the Hottest 100 where my commercial radio people are. No one is yelling <laughs> about the songs they're listening to on Fox FM. I should have voted. I don't vote in this. I think I did when I was like maybe 18 and 19 because I thought it was such a cool thing to do and like such a trendy way to get involved in music and showcase how unique an individual you are. Like the more songs you have or artists you have in your Triple J Hottest 100 votes, the cooler and more alternative you are by default. It's such a like signifier of I'm individual. It's absolutely a signifier. I'm pretty sure I did. <laughs> My Spotify settings on public when I started listening to that Bridget Hustwood playlist oh. that she sent off because they were cooler songs than what we're used to. If I was to vote in this, I would 100% be voting for like Taylor Swift, uh, False God, all of my favourite lover songs. But I do think it's a little bit of a wank fest and I don't mean to be harsh. If you share... Do you know how many people will listen to this and fucking love the Hottest 100 and you just called it a wank fest? No, no, no. I don't think the Hottest 100 is a wank fest. I really enjoy it. I love listening to it with my friends. I think it's great that they change the date of it so that everyone can enjoy it equally and it can be a bit of a celebration of music. However, I look back on how I shared votes regularly and I'm kind of like, I, I wonder why I did that. And I think when I was younger, I did that to seem cool to my peers. And there was cool no other reason. And there's no way that those were the songs that I streamed the most. Like if anyone wants to know what the best songs are, surely we just all look at our Spotify yearly wrapped. I would love to see a comparison between people's Spotify wrapped rankings and their votes in the Triple J Hottest 100. That's all I'm saying. I used to do it. I'm just saying it would be an interesting comparison. Thank you, next bitch. And now it is time for the quick and dirty. Every week we bring you the rough and tumble of the celebrity news cycle. Zara Ellis McDonald, what have you got for us today? Hello, Michelle. My first story in the quick and dirty today. In wild and fully unplanned scenes, Angie and Carlin of the Batchy were seen ring shopping. That is from Pedestrian. Bravo to Alistair Duncan who covered this story. I think the tone that he used talking about being a crazy circumstance of happenstance were... Inspired? Yeah, it was spot on. I think it is unusual that Angie and Carlin happened to be ring shopping and that a paparazzo happened to be directing his lens directly at them and that all the photos happened to be crystal clear and happened to show them smiling lovingly into each other's eyes. It is insanely, like, unusual that that's the the results and that that's what happened. Oh, lucky, lucky, lucky. (laughs) That paparazzo really stumbled on a gold mine. I can't wait for the engagement announcement. Oh, me too. I can't believe I, I have to say, I I know I'm the Oracle, but I have to say oracles are often flawed. I must put this on the record because I didn't, I didn't predict them to last this long. So I don't want you to think I'm a perfect Oracle. I want you to think I'm a human Oracle. (laughs) Story number two, Millie Bobby Brown trolled for inappropriate and disturbing red carpet look. That is from Yahoo. I tell you what, before we actually jump into this story, this is the kind of headline that I really despise in the media at the moment. And it's been going on. Go to town. What are we talking about? And it's been going on for years Mm. when media outlets grab a random Twitter comment where someone might have called it inappropriate and a random Twitter comment calling it disturbing and then wrap it in a headline that suggests that there was this great universal public conversation throwing around the words inappropriate and disturbing. That it represents the majority when it totally doesn't. You know what it reminds me of? This is a tangent, but I think this is a really important one to go on as well. When 
all those articles came out saying that progressive people think that Santa should now be a woman. Yeah. And they literally just took one person's tweet that had hardly any engagement on it and used that to represent a huge population of people who felt that way. Like that's just so not the case. And it's totally distorting how the population actually feels about something. And I know we work in the media, so I feel like maybe we can make comment on this a little better because we're not going to be biased about it. These are the parts of the media that I hate the most. These are the headlines that I hate the most because I think they really really do distort public conversation. Mm. I think that they create hysteria. Mm. I think they distract and I I don't think they're helpful. I think we were tasked with some of these stories. I remember when I was 20 or 21 working in the media and I was told to write stories like this. So take it from people who used to write them. They're not great. And I wish sometimes that I wasn't so young making decisions like that or being put under pressure like that because I regret it. And I think the damage that it can do is pretty significant. Let's actually talk about this Millie Bobby Brown story, though, because she did cop a little bit of backlash or it's not even backlash, just a little bit of commentary around the fact that she is only a teenager, but perhaps dressing like someone in her late 20s. Yeah, it is really interesting. The stories around Millie Bobby Brown, particularly in the last year, she is 15 and she was dressed, to be honest, as if she was 25. Like there was probably a good decade between how she was dressed and what her age actually was. We had a conversation in the office about this and I said to you, I just find it strange that there is a group of people working in her team that are making very deliberate choices about this. Like mm. they want her to be dressed so well beyond her age. And there's nothing we can do about that and I don't know if there's any kind of great meaning behind it or whether it matters but I do find it curious that it's happening. Well I don't know how to word this in an intelligent way. I don't care. Like I don't know if it could really matter if Millie Bobby Brown looks like a 25 year old when she might only be 15, 16. I just I don't have much energy for this discussion. I know that you and I semi disagree on that, that you do want to have the conversation around it, where I'm kind of throwing my hands up in the air and going, well, it's better that she's dressing like this at least than being overly sexualized really young. Like all the alternatives that we've seen with plenty of child stars, I don't think this is a particularly worrying one. I think the only thing about that is I think it's a bit simplistic to be like, well, it's it's better that she be dressing like this than sexualized because I think being sexualized is literally just the next step. Like you start seeing her in a different light, you start seeing her in a more mature light and then they start. It's perhaps, a gateway drug. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> like I think that's a way to look at it. I, I'm also kind of on the same page as you though, a bit like throw my hands in the air. What is my what does my opinion on this really, really matter? Mm. Because there's clearly a team of people making these decisions for a reason. And what kind of impact is it having at a greater level? I actually don't know if I know. If I have the answer, I'll come back on the podcast in a few weeks and let you know. You might call this naive and I don't know the answer to this. And I wonder if you do or you want to shed any insight on it. Couldn't it be that Millie Bobby Brown has tastes in more mature looking garments? I know she has a team around her. I know she would have a stylist. But do we really think that the team around her would have complete control and like the final call on what she actually wears? Perhaps she is just more into a certain kind of clothing that is more mature. Emma Watson was the same. I think it's a tiny, tiny bit reductive to have that line of thought because I don't think she would have a heap of say. Yes, she'd probably be given a couple of choices to be like, which one do you like the most? But if she did, if she was a 15-year-old being like, oh, I want to dress like that, there is still a team of people around her enabling it. So they're still making the final call. Mm. There is a team around her who could very much redirect the narrative and also redirect her style, but they're choosing not to. So I don't know if Millie Bobby Brown's opinion in this case actually matters. Agree to disagree. Number three, here's the man. Channing Tatum rekindles relationship with Jesse J. That is from Vulture. 
Wow. They weren't split for very long. I mean, these were statements that were given to People magazine. And if we're going to trust anyone in the celebrity rumour game, then I would probably trust People above many, many others. Apparently, they're back together. They had about a month or two apart, but they have rekindled and I am semi-surprised. I always find it interesting when high-profile couples announce their split and announce them getting back together in the space of a couple of months because it makes me wonder about all the couples that broke up silently and got back together Mm. before making that final call to put it out to the world. So because they put it out to the world, they must have been sure it was over because they very easily could have just had their own silent break if there was some opportunity for them to get back together. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know that they were split for a month or two, but in reality, it might have been six months. And it kind of reminds me of conversations you and I have had in the past, I think on our Love Etc. podcast, which is our dating and relationships podcast with Bumble Australia, where you discussed your theory that to get back together with an you need to fully call it quits, fully move on, fully break up and then maybe reopen the chapter down the line. For it to work, I think, for a long period of time, but I'm also 25 and don't know that much about the world. But in the anecdotal like evidence that I have of my friends and things like that, sometimes sometimes people need to get back together in order to break up again. Like mm. if it feels like it's not done, I think sometimes it is okay to get back together if it is going to be those three months or so that's going to give you that closure. Some of the strongest couples I know had a break in the middle of their relationship, had time apart, got back together and were stronger than ever. Well, yeah, totally. My best friend moved to London for a year before getting back together with her boyfriend and they're very, very happy now. So it's a funny thing at this age particularly to see, although Channing Tatum is certainly not, not her age. age. So I don't, how old is so I don't know how we got here. Channing Tatum, 25. <laughs> oh my God. Number four, Sally Rooney's Normal People is being adapted into a TV series that is from Cosmopolitan. I think this is actually an old headline and an old story that's been updated because the trailer is at Mish. I fucked up. Yeah. I think I brought this you, headline you in and I could have just gotten one that far better explained what has actually developed. Well, clearly what Cosmo have done for good SEO is just grabbed their old article about Sally Rooney's normal people being adapted and just thrown the trailer detail in there. But and that's why was I a hook, line and sinker for that <laughs> SEO update. See, <laughs> it was the first one I saw and I was like, Cosmo, we don't have a headline from then. I'll put that in. Wait, did you Google it? And this I is Googled, the first article that came up? Yeah, I See? think I Googled uh, Sally Rooney's normal people trailer because that is the update that we should have had in that headline. My bad, you guys. The but trailer has been released. The real winner here is Cosmo for really nailing the SEO game. <laughs> anyway, back to the start. For those of you who have read Sally Rooney's Normal People, it's a really good book. We recommended it on the podcast a little while ago now. It is being adapted into a TV series. The trailer is out. It is very sexy. It's very breathy. Like it's, it's kind of ASMR-y. It's a bit porny. Yeah, which I get that because Normal People is quite a raunchy book. If you haven't read it. quite a what? Raunchy. <laughs> normal People is quite a raunchy book. <laughs> <laughs> I sounded like... Um, who was it, like Prue and True or yes, something on like... On Kath and Kim. Kath, was it Prue and True? Prue yeah. and Sue, I don't no, know. No. <laughs> Prue and True. It's <laughs> quite raunchable. <laughs> Imagine if we did an entire episode in Prue and True voices. My mum would love it. Anyway, Normal People is a great book. I highly, highly recommend it. I think it's one of my favourite books that I've ever read. Zara, you and I were having this conversation the other day in an Uber about what our favourite book ever is and Normal People would be up there. I do want to bring something in before we talk about the trailer too much. Did you know that Sally Rooney's reviews on things like Goodreads aren't that good? glittery like when I read normal people I remember it had a really high star rating people really loved it but it's almost harking back to what we just discussed with tones and I in that as soon as it became a thing and it became a trend and everyone jumped on it 
people started to almost like seek out what was wrong with it or where weaknesses were. And now it's dropped down. I think it was a 3.8 stars on Goodreads out of five when I looked at it, which is not bad by any means. But I don't think that reflects the hype and the accolades that that book won. Didn't it win a Man Booker Prize? Yeah, it did, which is the most absurd thing, but also not surprising given the conversations we've just been having. People hate things that get to the mainstream. I think it's also a hype thing. I think it's the idea that the minute something gets hype, your bar is so much higher. And so for the people that are reading it later, they're waiting for this book to change their entire perspective on life. And that is never, ever going to happen. Well, the bar's set so much higher and how are you going to hit that again and again and again? Are you going to watch the TV series? Absolutely. Of course I will. It's a very raunchy series. The one thing... (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be very raunchy series. The one thing that got me and always gets me when my favourite books are adapted to television or cinema is that the characters don't always look the way that I envisaged them in my head. Do they resemble the illustration that you had in your mind? No, but they never, ever do. Mm. It's kind of like when Harry Potter was um, made into a movie and everybody realised it was Hermione, not Hermione. (laughs) (laughs) Was that a thing? That was absolutely a thing. Are you kidding? Do you not remember that being a thing? Hermione. I'm trying to spell it out in my head to see how that would be Hermione. Hermione, I I guess. Okay, come to the Facebook group if you were in Team (laughs) Camp Hermione and then we had this like shock come the movie's release. You know what this reminds me of? What? (laughs) Minsippies. Minsippies. It's actually Minsepi's, you fucked it. Anyway. OG listeners of Shameless will remember that. It also reminds me of when uh, Edward Cullen in Twilight ended up being Robert Patterson. And I feel like that was one of the worst casting decisions of all time. Anyway, number five. <laughs> Meghan Markle and Prince Harry will retain their royal patronages. <laughs> okay. No, we're telling the listeners what just happened. You guys won't hear the first two times that Zara tried to read that out. But Zara struggles with the word patronages. Would you like to try again? Meghan Markle and Prince Harry will retain their royal patronages after stepping down. That is from Harper's Bazaar. Wonderful. I'm just going to roll right through. So Meghan Markle and Prince Harry will no longer be her royal highness or his royal highness. It'll be interesting to see if they can keep the Sussex brand. I think they can. I think the Queen said yes, but apparently that doesn't make much sense. But the explanation I got, uh, I think it was through Squiz Shortcuts, was she's the Queen. She can basically do what she wants. So she's kind of gone against the grain of what's expected she's taken away the hrh and kept duke and duchess of sussex right and but they will be still involved with their charities they'll pay back the renovation for frogmore cottage Mm -hmm. which is i think the biggest thorn in the british public's bow do you have a thorn (laughs) in your bow side isn't a thorn in your side yeah but a thorn would hurt anywhere like a thorn in your eye in your bow though a thorn in your cheek it was a thorn. Anywho, that's all for the quick and dirty today. <laughs> I love that you always get so awkward with the last one. You just um, want to shut it down. Is that everything we wanted to say? I was very upset about Prince Harry's video during the week. Oh, this is so true. Sorry. I, I wrapped it too early. <laughs> We're that, back. The video that was posted on Sussex Royal, which was Harry giving a speech about why he chose to step down, was very, very interesting because his language was crucial in this mm. kind of context. He kept talking about his decision to step down, about his decision to pull away about how much he loves his wife and the quote, trust me when I say there was no other option. Isn't that searing? Mm. Like I would love to know. I can't believe how much I've been sucked into this. I just want to know what happened and why. (laughs) And we will never, ever know. That is all for the quick and dirty. Thank you so much. Coming up on the show, a conversation, of course, about Brad and Jen. But first, a word from our sponsor. 
The Screen Actors Guild Awards were last week and while there were many standout headlines for Jennifer Aniston, including her very first gong on the night for her role in the morning show, none commanded the attention of the masses quite like her public reunion with ex-husband Brad Pitt. The pair celebrated their respective wins with grins and some flirtatious body contact recharging the battery on the decades-old Brad and Jen rumour mill that has kept some tabloid magazines in circulation. Zara, let's start at the very beginning. What was your reaction when you first saw these photographs? Oh, I was excited. I think most people, and I would hate to speak for most people, but I'm going to speak <laughs> from most people's gut reaction was some kind of happiness, mm-hmm. some kind of, oh, that's cute. Or, oh, that's cool. And of course, when you unpack anything, nothing's as good as it seems. But let's start with gut reactions. And I think most people were like, ah. I think most people were like, ah. Some people were just shocked to see a real life photograph of Brad and Jen together that wasn't photoshopped or like 20 years old. And then there was a small minority that were angry that we're talking about Jen and Brad again. And why do we keep digging this story up? And that it's almost like disrespectful. I definitely felt this vibe from some listeners in our Facebook group. It's almost disrespectful to talk about their relationship or think about the possibilities of what could emerge again between them, given that he treated her quite badly when they were married. I think what people will realise as we do this segment is I've done a kind of 360 with this. I started thinking one way. About a couple of days later, I started thinking another way and then I sort of made my way back to how I first felt. I want to get their timeline up for those who aren't obsessed with Brad and Jen or who aren't quite across why people are so obsessed with this story. So Brad and Jen met in 1998 after being set up by their agents. Very Hollywood. It's like, who's your hottest um, talent? (laughs) Who's your hottest talent? Let's put them together. They married in 2000 in a very lavish Malibu ceremony, reportedly costing about a million dollars. They were fireworks. They were fireworks. And it was at a time when he had just starred in Fight Club and she was the star of like the hottest sitcom in the entire world, which was Friends. So they were the couple, like the couple. In 2005, though, it was announced that they had split after he starred in Mr. and Mrs. Smith with old mate Angelina Jolie. And just months later, they were pictured on a beach with her son clearly together. Well, there was an affair, right? We don't need to dance around the topic. I don't understand why so many people aren't just coming out and saying that. There was an affair between Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. Like, Michelle with the big gun. Yes, everybody (laughs) says that. No one addresses that. Everyone, like, talks about this timeline to be like, very soon after he was with... He was with Angelina Jolie when he was still with Jen. It, It started in 2004 like why do people just not come out and say that tell them well I'm annoyed because he cheated on her so I want us to keep that in mind when we talk about them rekindling everybody knows he cheated on her he absolutely cheated on her I read the most astounding piece in Vanity Fair from 2006 did you read this profile of Jennifer Aniston is this the one where she gave that pretty interesting quote yes there's a few and I want to go back through a couple of them if you allow me yes I've got some quotes too let's do it I will put this piece in the show notes I swear to God, if you like the Brad and Jen story and how it's circulating, read this profile. It's the one thing I beg you to read from 2006. It is the most sympathetic profile I've ever read about anyone. And for the record, this piece was published about a year after they had split. The lead was, when Jennifer Aniston opens the door to the Malibu bungalow she's been holed up in lately, she gives me a radiant smile and effusive hello. Then she bursts into tears. Jen. (laughs) Okay. So then the journalist asked Jennifer Aniston about the photos that emerged three months after the split of Angelina and Brad frolicking on a beach with Maddox at a resort in Africa. And Jen said, the world was shocked and I was shocked. 
She talked in this interview about screaming in her backyard out of anger and she posed in this thing semi-nude. It's like the best, <laughs> it's the best revenge profile I've ever in my life. There's so much going on. They interviewed one of her friends who said, this woman is basically having a root canal without anesthesia. What a great quote. What a friend. And then the final quote from Jennifer Aniston about Brad Pitt was, there's a sensitivity chip that's missing. I love that so much. Let's be clear as well. It wasn't just the photos of Brad and Angelina frolicking on a beach. There was a full spread in W Magazine that depicted them as this happy family, the perfect couple. Like they came out and went hard with pro Brad and Angelina publicity. This was not something where the media concocted a story for them. Brad and Angelina very soon after getting together took the bull by the horns I don't know am I a 50 year old woman using that am I like a 50 year old middle-aged white man using that phrase but they really did try to rewrite the public narrative so there is no blame on Jen for wanting to kind of get her voice out there and get her version of events because some of the quotes that Angelina gave were kind of a bit fucked at the time. Like, not to put the blame on her more than Brad, because he was the one in the marriage, after all. She will never have as much of a responsibility for what happened as he will. But this is what Angelina said in the mid-2000s. Because of the film, we ended up being brought together to do all these crazy things. And I think we found this strange friendship and partnership that just kind of suddenly happened. I think a few months in, I realised, God, I can't wait to get to work. Whether it was shooting a scene or arguing about a scene or gun practice or dance class or doing stunts anything we had to do with each other we found a lot of joy in it together and a lot of teamwork we just became a pair and it took until really the end of the shoot for us I think to realize it might mean something more than we earlier allowed ourselves to believe I just find that to be quite a tasteless quote to put out into the public domain within months of a marriage splintering I mean there was a lot of tasteless stuff going on though and I think that's why people care so deeply about this most recent development, which is the photo at the SAG Awards. There was this really interesting piece on The Telegraph by Anna Hart that I read this week. And she quoted Joe Piazza, who's a veteran US showbiz columnist. And she said that the reason we're so fixated on this story 15, 20 years later is because it's a character thing. These mm-hmm. characters are so, so strong. She said, Brad Pitt and Angelina had strong brands already in 2004, but by hooking up in 2005, they combined the two most intriguing narratives in Hollywood. Brad was married to America's sweetheart and abandoned a seemingly perfect marriage for the bad girl. Angelina was a bad girl who was redeemed. Anna Hart followed that up by saying, in true Madonna whore dichotomy fashion, Angelina Jolie and Jennifer Aniston appeared like polar opposites. Yeah, it's so true. And I want to be clear as well. I don't think it's fair the way many people talk about Angelina Jolie in this story. And what I fear with all this pro-Jen and Brad sentiment is that we're going to have that really annoying narrative that the bad guy, Brad, who cheated on his wife and ended up going through years of substance abuse and potentially violent family disputes and all of the rumours that came out after his and Angelina's divorce – that he's going to have this redemption story and Angelina Jolie is going to be the Medusa in all of this. Like that's going to really annoy me because I don't think Brad has been anything close to an angel based on some of his own quotes that he's bonged himself into oblivion for the last couple of decades. It's going to grate on me if we trod all over Angelina Jolie and give Brad this golden carpet for him to walk out onto. And I think this is where I did one my 180, right? Because I started thinking about a couple of things, like not to be a drain but is there something to be said about a woman being at the top of her game work-wise? Jen Aniston winning the award for Morning Wars and our most interesting story about her being a relationship that ended 15 years ago. 
The other thing I thought about is I can't imagine the nostalgia being the same had the roles been reversed, had Jen cheated on Brad and had an affair. Like, would it be framed in the same way? Would we buy into the fairy tale as much? I really, really don't think we would. If Jen had been going to addiction therapy and Alcoholics Anonymous for the last 18 months, would we be so forgiving? And I'm not saying that there's a problem with having substance issues, but if you look at the notes after Brad and Angelina's divorce, there is allegedly, apparently, quite a an awful incident that happened on a plane between Maddox, who is Angelina's oldest son, and Brad Pitt that led to the divorce. So I, I just can't imagine if a woman was embroiled in a scandal like that, that we would be quite so forgiving and keen for her to come back into our good graces. Exactly. And I can't stop thinking about that. There's no way this story would be the same if the roles were reversed. Then I keep thinking, is it really not so much about like the salvation of Jen and Jen finally being back with the guy that we loved her with and so much more about nostalgia that we don't have these big golden couples anymore. Our attention is maybe so diluted that we just want to hold on to some kind of hope. Mm. I wanted to quickly touch on the publicity machine around this story and to be honest even the photo opportunity in general I think something weird is certainly happening I think it was interesting that Jennifer Aniston was paced behind Leonardo DiCaprio at the Golden Globe so that when Brad went up and gave his speech the camera was mostly on Leo the entire time because they did the film together and so you had Jen just on his shoulder in the background. I think that's clearly a direction of the network that televised it, but an interesting point nonetheless. I do think, though, more than that, there's something strange about Brad Pitt being pictured at the SAG Awards watching her give her speech. Did you see that photo of him watching the TV screen? Well, he literally halted an interview with one publication to say, I want to watch this, and then in front of an entire room of media people watched Jen's speech on a monitor by himself, looking very stoked for her, very happy, and I just find that kind of decision-making to be quite public. More than that, if we're talking about public decision-making, there are reports that he was yelling, Aniston, 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 as she walked past in front of all of those media people to pull her back to get a photo with her. And then when she did try to walk away, he did grab her arm in that now very, very famous photo of him trying to pull her back. He has orchestrated this. There is no doubt about this, that Brad Pitt has orchestrated this narrative himself. And there was an interview he did with Entertainment Tonight in the last couple of days about the crazy frenzy around this photo and he's like oh I haven't been following any of it I have no idea what's going on Mm. and I thought that was so disingenuous because you so so clearly created this moment for yourself yeah I do think that a lot of women are getting behind this story because it pushes back so wholeheartedly on that sad poor gen narrative that has been permeated through gossip magazines for over a decade now she was looking her absolute best she was receiving the award of her entire career really she is at the peak of her career right now in her 50s and I think people really want to get behind that I also think so many of us have been betrayed or hurt by a male partner and plenty of women love the concept of him regretting that of a man who has betrayed us and wronged us growing over time to think that we were the best thing he ever had and that he fucked things up and that he will finally one day realize that we were the woman for him And I think this taps into that so well. He didn't know what he had until it was gone. Look at the photo of him trying to pull her back. He's full of regret. And that's what every woman who has ever been cheated on wants for herself. I agree with that. Like, I do think there's a sense of that. But I also think it's a bit too earnest to assume that the entire frenzy around this photo is... Not the entire frenzy. No, no, no. I totally get that. But I think it's also like, is it about 
that or do we just want them back together because we like old couples back together? Like Rachel Syme of The New Yorker tweeted, the longing for Brad and Jen is deep down the hope to mend something from the past which we hope was not irrevocably over. It's not about them so much as it is about the fantasy that no door is ever closed, Mm. that nothing is final, that nothing is absolute. I think my other favourite tweets on this entire story were the ones that kind of represented that real cognitive dissonance that a lot of people felt over this story. And there was a tweet from another woman called Rachel Simon who said, me, Brad and Jen are mature adults who can be friends without the world freaking out every time they're in the same room together, okay? Me, after seeing the photo, do we call them Braniston or Annie Pitt? (laughs) And there were so many tweets like that being like, oh, fuck off, guys. Like, as if they need to get back together, he cheated on her. And then the second thought being like, but, oh. Yeah, I'm definitely in that camp. I don't know where I sit. I've kind of gone back and forth just like you have. I think it would be annoying because I see her as so much more worthy and incredible than how he has behaved recently. Yes, he's hot. Like, I get it. (laughs) He's fucking beautiful. He looks like an angel sent from the heavens above. He looks like he was carved by Adonis himself. However, is he the best dude Probably not. They're not getting back together. Like they're imagine, not. Imagine if they do though. I know, but I I think it's like, this is like me saying Donald Trump was never going to win the 2016 election. It's like a funny story, but it won't happen. Brad and Jen are not getting back together. I'm the Oracle. Listen to what I have to say. But there is something so light and so fun and so universal about a story as meaningless as this mm. one. And there was a really brilliant quote in that Anna Hart piece in The Telegraph that I wanted to finish on, Mish where she said, the power of an epic is that the narrative takes place in the wider context of our own evolving lives with world events providing an even more dramatic backdrop. Some of us have now remained invested in these three familiar characters throughout financial crashes, global warfare, political upheaval and environmental catastrophe. And I know that sounds quite deep, but I think there is absolutely fragments of truth in that, that there's so much going on in the world. There's been so much drama and so much tragedy and so much to be fearful about. And yet through it all, there are still these three random celebrities we still really care deeply about. The love triangle that will never die. (laughs) Three, two, one, This week, Alec Baldwin invited New York Times journalists Megan Toohey and Jodie Cantor onto his podcast, Here's the Thing, to chat about their recently published book, She Said, and their investigation into allegations of sexual assault and misconduct from Harvey Weinstein. For the first 25 minutes of the interview, everything was fine. After that, though, things took a strange turn when Baldwin used the interview to defend his friend, the director James Toback, who has been accused of sexual misconduct from nearly 400 women. From there, the interview got awkward and shone a light on an issue that continues to plague the Me Too movement, that people are happy to support the movement so long as their friends aren't involved in it. Mm. Mish, walk me through what you were thinking as you listened to this interview. I was stunned. You and I, well, actually you saw this on Twitter. I think one of, I think it might have been Megan Tui who tweeted it out. Jody tweeted it out. Jody tweeted it out saying we're surprised this even was published. It was a bit of a shit show. I'm just paraphrasing obviously. But she mentioned the 25 minute mark and how things really took that drastic turn. And you turned to me and said, we need to listen to this. And I was like, absolutely, please put it on. <laughs> I'm pausing my work emails to listen. So we listened to the entire episode and I think you and I kind of just stared at each other with open mouths and couldn't quite comprehend how the dynamic shifted so totally and so completely. Yeah, totally. Let's actually play out for you the quotes that sort of made us raise our eyebrows the most in this interview. I was filming a documentary film with uh, Jimmy Toback, uh, who is a dear friend of mine. And in terms of sexual harassment, there's a whole pile of uh, uh, 
Hundreds. Hundreds of women have accused him. Right. Jimmy's one of those people who believe that if my batting average is 10 percent, I need to hit on a thousand women. I'm not excusing his behavior, but Jimmy's somebody who I had this deep intellectual exploration with about films we were going to do. We developed a bunch of projects together. There were very few people in the world you could have the kind of conversation about movie making you could have with Jimmy. And he was a very dear, dear friend of mine. And then all this stuff comes up where they say he actually physically assaulted um, Selma Blair. The James Toback coverage was mainly done by the L.A. Times. Right. That's my impression. Yes. I would go back and read those stories and listen to the women because it sounds like you may have missed something really important, which is the sort of audition factor involved in— Did any of them bring charges against it, Jimmy? Well, remember, you're saying charges, which is a criminal word. Um, any civil cases brought against Jimmy by those women? Wow. So that was only a minute. That was only a minute of what was maybe an eight-minute conversation that we sort of stared at each other about. And I'm intrigued as to why I couldn't find one news item about this sort of exchange. Yeah, well, it's weird, right? Because Alec Baldwin is a celebrity and I would call him an A-lister, but he doesn't really make the news all that much. And when I was thinking about it, I don't even really know what Alec Baldwin is famous for. Like, yeah, he's an actor. He's 61. He's a writer. He's a producer. But if you think about someone who's super famous like him, you can typically remember something they've been in. I remember him being Trump on Saturday Night Live and I remember him really owning that character and doing a very good impersonation of Donald Trump. But apart from that, he's been in things like Pearl Harbor and It's Complicated, but he hasn't really had a standout role that people know him for. Yeah, and I wonder if that harves back to our age a little bit too in that he hasn't done a lot in the time that we've been taking notice. But Mm. before that, I imagine he probably had a career that was more recognisable to people older than us, maybe. Mm. I thought it was interesting that when Jodie Cantor tweeted this out, this interview, she said, we didn't know if this would air because of the unexpected turn of the conversation at minute 25, world's best clickbait. (laughs) Now it has with an unusual ending from Alec Baldwin saying he needs to learn more about Me Too. Yes. And so basically what had happened was Alec Baldwin, as you would have heard in that snippet, was very good friends or is very good friends. And that's the weirdest part. He sort of swapped between talking in the past and the present with director James Toback. The Los Angeles Times published a story about James Toback during the Me Too movement, which alleged that 38 women said that James Toback had sexually harassed them with more than 300 women contacting the Times with similar stories. Baldwin, who was very, very famously outspoken on social media, even in the last week about Trump, remained silent through all of this. Absolutely. And I think what stood out to me overall in this interview was Baldwin's apparent support of the Me Too movement right up until the point that it required any level of personal sacrifice on his behalf. And it actually really sung to a point that Clementine Ford made in our latest In Conversation episode that Some men, not all men, but some men definitely pledge their allegiance to feminist issues until it requires any level of sacrifice on their behalf. And I think Alec Baldwin was only happy to support women's business of sexual harassment in the workplace until it personally challenged him. And at that point, women's business became nothing but an inconvenience to him and an annoyance. And it is so, so telling, I think, of what a lot of men feel about this movement. I think the other thing that I found very interesting about this interview was his fixation on the criminal. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been a really common thread about our conversations around Me Too and sexual harassment in that so many people want tangible examples or tangible stories about 
assault. They don't really understand harassment. And there was a quote from Jodie, I think it was, about sexual harassment. And she said, there's a harm that's real that isn't physical. And I think our conversation around sexual harassment still aren't at a place where people understand the toll that they take. Mm. So he was so, so fixated on the criminal aspect of the behaviour. And he kept saying, well, had they pressed charges? Did they press charges? Why didn't they press charges? And I think it's such a... Reductive and flattening tactic. Absolutely, but a very, very common one. And I think that people who want to stay friends with predators can very easily try to hide behind it because everybody knows how hard it is to prove criminal behaviour when it comes to sexual harassment misconduct. Yeah, what really gripped me about this as well was his defensiveness and his fragility. That as soon as he was challenged, he threw his hands up in the air, probably literally and figuratively, and had the line of thought, well, oh, well, it's all a bit tricky isn't it? It's all a bit of grey area. What's the point in even trying? If we're not going to do it perfectly, what's the point in trying at all? And he started like wheeling out these examples of, oh, well, has the New York Times, the publication that Cantor and Tui work for, have they ever had an incident of sexual harassment? As if one incident at a workplace or how a workplace deals with that excuses the fact that he remains to be friends with a man who has been accused by hundreds, hundreds of women. It was the most unusual bending of logic and reasoning to kind of make him feel better about himself and excuse his behavior and I just think there is such a lesson to be learned from this episode and I've never seen such a crystal clear depiction of male fragility and male defensiveness towards feminism as I have in this episode. Why do you think he published it? Because that's the question that I keep coming back to now. We will by the way of course put this episode the link to this episode in our show notes so that you can all listen to it. When he published it, he said it was his worst interview ever and that he clearly has a lot more to learn about Me Too, but he still did publish it. And I think it's a brilliant thing that he did publish it. Mm. I think, like you said, it's such a a crystal clear example of male fragility that is so important for us to listen to and so important for us to almost platform to say this is what not to do. But I wonder if he's also hoping for a few pats on the back for publishing it. And then... I kind of wonder, you can literally see me going around in circles. Another 360 here. Because uh, then I'm like, does that even matter? Like, is that even relevant? I think net outcome is positive from him publishing it. I'm happy that he did, regardless of his reasonings. Like in an ideal world, he would be doing it for totally altruistic reasons to help other men and that he's fully reformed. I don't think that's the case. I think that, yeah, perhaps this was to get a pat on the back and to be like, what a brave guy for exposing yourself to have this flawed logic and this flawed reasoning and this work still to do mentally when it comes to feminism and sexual assault. However, I'm happy he did so because I think this is a discussion point. The problem is no one seems to be discussing it. There are no conversations in public discourse about this. There was nothing on Twitter either, which I found really, really interesting. There was barely anything on Twitter. There was no news items about it. So I'm glad we can have this conversation because I think it is literally the best example of, as you said before, male fragility around me too. I have one question for you before we wrap up. Do you think it's possible to be a male feminist and remain in cahoots with a guy who has been accused by 400 women almost of sexual harassment? Oh, fuck you for leaving me with the hard questions just as we're meant to wrap up the segment. To me, it's an easy question. Of course not. Absolutely not. Yeah, I don't think so. Like there's no way around this. There is no possible reason that he should remain friends with someone who has been accused by this volume of women. One accusation, of course, there's grey area. Hundreds and hundreds of women. What grey area exists here? Over the course of 40 years as well. So yeah, no, no, no. I definitely agree with you. It's just it's an answer that a lot of people may not actually want to hear. Absolutely. I think that's all we've got time for today. I think it is. Thank you so much for listening as always. And as always too, you know where to find us. We are on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. We are on Facebook at Shameless Podcast Community. Michelle? 
Uh, we have a newsletter. That is the main <laughs> thing I want to tell you about this week. It is the Shameless Podcast Recommendations newsletter. It drops every Thursday. A column is always written by either Zara, myself, Annabelle, or a friend of Shameless. We also give you recommendations on what you should read, watch, and listen to. There's normally even a discount code in there for a brand partner. So do subscribe. It is free to subscribe. We will put the link to that in our show notes. We will be back in your ears as always on Yay! Thursday with another In Conversation that we can't wait to share. Bye! That's a thing now, isn't it? Bye! Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.